You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning, I'm Michael May of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office, and I'm glad to be with you today for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. We begin today with a highlight from our Catholic Chicago program. Hosts Father Greg Sakowitz and Mark Teresi spent time talking with Dr. Ed Gordon. Dr. Gordon is on the Grant Park Monument Commission, and he shared his thoughts on the controversy surrounding the recent movement to remove statues of historical figures from public spaces. Here is a highlight. Now, this whole topic, Edward, is so important. So much has transpired since the summertime, removal of this statue or this one. Uh, Give us some of the background and the historicity that involves removal of statues and the why of it. Well, first of all, this is a historical issue. This is a a social issue. It's an emotional issue. It's a political issue. It's many things going on at once. Let's take a look at the historical context. How do we judge whether a particular monument or statue uh, is correct for today? Well, first of all, what was the purpose of the monument when, when it was put up? What, what, what was it honoring, all right? Well, what did this person do in their life? Second, um, or I, well, first of all, the purpose, and then uh, what was an intended to honor that they accomplished? And finally, is that purpose now overshadowed by subsequent history, meaning it doesn't really matter anymore? Or is the purpose, how is it still valued by our society, all right? So let's take a look at, first of all, the first question. When we honor someone in uh, an issue that they accomplished in their life, we are taking a look at that particular issue. Uh, For Christopher Columbus, it was he was the first explorer to sail to the West. He was looking for China. He accidentally bumped into North and South America, right? A little detour. Now, after that, an agent exploration swept Europe. Many other people followed him, but he was the first one to start. If you read Samuel Eliot Morrison's biography of Christopher Columbus, uh, which is a classic on the, on the topic, you will see that over and over and over again. Secondly, uh, did this man have problems? Was he perfect? No. And what about the age in which he lived? Is that age, 1492, any different than 2020? Uh, Yes, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Do the things they valued in 1492, is it the same as today? Uh, Well, let's see. Slavery was endemic across the whole world then. Europe, Africa, Asia, all over. Even in the Americas, uh, Native American tribes enslaved one another. Uh, Well, slavery still exists today. We all know that, and that's unfortunate, and it's awful. But we've outlawed it. Most all major countries have basically outlawed it, as far as we know. So if we use historical presentism, the values we have today, and project that back on Christopher Columbus, how does he look? Not very good. Not very good at all. 
There are things going on there. Uh, let's see. Does the Roman Catholic Church still have the Inquisition? Are we still burning people at the stake? Well, no. Well, we did it then. Well, that means that the Catholic Church today is irrelevant. Well, no, that was a long time ago, and things have changed, haven't they? No. The Church persecuted Jews in 1492. Do we do that today? Well, I don't think so. So you have to be very careful, because what's happening now, of course, is that in the United States, 700,000 Americans died in the Civil War to pass that 13th Amendment that ended slavery in 1865. And by the way, for our listeners, it were the Republicans who were fighting to pass that amendment, and the Democrats were bitterly opposed to passing that amendment in our Congress, not just the South, which seems strange to us, doesn't it? Uh, in certain contexts today, looking at politics. Now, Ed, can I back up a little bit, just so people understand? So you're on the Grant Park Monument Commission. Yes, there's a number of people on the commission. This is the Friends of the Grant Park, and I was asked to serve on the commission as a historian to provide context. Now, what's interesting to me is... Twelve months ago, nobody ever heard of the Grant Park Monument Commission. Oh, it's been around for a long time. No, these no, are the I friends. Mean, in terms of your visibility now, in terms of these po- these political, social issues, um, where where does where does your decision making fit in? Well, the commission will make a recommendation to the uh, board of directors of the Friends of Grant Park. They, in turn, will make a recommendation to the mayor. The mayor makes the final decision. And then can can you just describe for the listeners the Christopher Columbus, the removal of that statue. How did that happen? uh, That happened, uh, as far as I can tell, because anarchists wanted to blow the statue up. And as far as I can tell, of course, that presented a a life threat to uh, the people and also to the police officers guarding it. So the mayor took the statue and stored it somewhere. We don't know. I don't know where it is. All right? Uh, but remember now, this all started because uh, of the racial incidents, the murders that occurred, the black, the African Americans that were uh, shot by police, and the Black Lives Matter movement calls for the removal of monuments to people that they judge violate their ideology and moral standards. Now, let's face it. The Black Lives Matter movement wants to end acts of violence and injustice participated by racism, and it calls for the recognition of minority achievements throughout the course of U.S. history. And is this a systemic problem that still exists in the United States today? Yes, the answer is yes. It existed in uh, during the Civil War, after the Civil War. It certainly existed in the times of Christopher Columbus. Uh, the question, though, is if you if you use historical presentism to judge past events, such as Christopher Columbus, it begins to use a cancel culture and identity politics to expunge those with whom they disagree from history. No, no. Say more about that, Edward. Say more about that. Well, uh, in other words, uh, there is a famous book that uh, Orwell wrote. George Orwell uh, called 1984. Mm -hmm. And in the book, 
he makes the statement, every statue and street and building has to be renamed. Every date has to be changed. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party in power is always right. All right? So are we going to basically, every time there is a change in a political party in America or a mass movement, cancel out the background? Such as there are people that now say Abraham Lincoln was a bigot. Mm -hmm. He did not believe in racial equality. All of his statues should be removed. George Washington had slaves tear down the Washington Monument, tear down the Lincoln Memorial. Jefferson had slaves destroy the Jefferson Memorial. All right. Who wrote the, the Declaration of Independence? Thomas Jefferson. Who was president of the United States that did the important Louisiana Purchase? Did George Washington lead the army that helped us to end the uh, colonial period with Great Britain? Was he the one that established many of the traditions, rules, and regulations of the presidency and helped bring the country together? What about the achievements of these men? Were they perfect? Hey, George even had wooden teeth. He wasn't perfect, right? <laughs> but my point is, no one is perfect. As a historian, I could take any historical figure or contemporary figure, and I can point out many problems that they have. And maybe no one deserves a statue. Would your criteria now be different than it was a year ago in terms of recommending? No. No? No, we would not. What, no. what is the criteria? How, how do you... Well, again, the cri I just named it. I just told you. What was the purpose in putting the statue up to begin with? Were we memorializing Christopher Columbus as, what they say, a murderer and slaver? Is that, is that why the, the statue was put up? Is that why the Columbian Exposition was named after Christopher Columbus? Is that why the first commemorative stamp issued by the U.S. government was a a commemorative stamp honoring Christopher Columbus. Is that why this, the city of Columbus, Ohio, is named after Columbus, or the street here named after Columbus? So, well, also no. then, Edward, are you actually saying that if you really look at it and start uh, nitpicking, you could remove every statue from this country, rename almost every city in this country, and begin from ground zero? I could re I could tear down every saint in the Catholic Church exactly. if I did that. I was just going to say, you know, that. Mother yeah. Teresa had a terrible temper. She yeah. was not perfect, uh, but did she have a tremendous life of helping other people? Yes, she did. So uh, these are human beings, and most importantly, again, social mores change. At the time of the time of Christopher Columbus, slavery was practiced around the world. It was wrong. It's morally wrong. We had to fight a civil war. The Supreme Court of the United States upheld slavery until that civil war. The Supreme Court of the United States of America upheld the, the uh, concept of the sterilization of people who they thought were uh, biologically inferior. In fact, the Nazis, the Germans, based their initial laws on our practices in the 1920s. We didn't end those practices to the 1970s. The United States is not a perfect moral country. And who is going to judge this now? Are we going to have the group that has the most violent mobs who in the end can tear down statues and threaten people's lives, are mobs going to dictate the social policy of the United States? 
There are people that say that we should remove Christopher Columbus's statue permanently from Grant Park because it threatens the lives of people. Well, that is surrendering to the anarchists. There's fallout and residue from the decision that removed Christopher Columbus from the Italian community. I've read so many articles about wonderfully talented, self-sacrificing uh, you know, Italians in the Chicago area that really see this as an affront to all their good work. Yeah, they're angry. That's the way yeah, to put they're it. Angry. So, what, what you, uh, what's your take on that, Ed? Well, of course, Christopher Columbus came from Genoa, Italy, and they are identifying uh, this as an affront to the Italians. Uh, I think it's much broader than that. I don't think it's just the Italians who should be concerned. I think every American should be concerned. Because, again, the issue here is the rewriting of history and basically uh, erasing this man from the history books. And I think that that's wrong. Now, there are others in our society who have made contributions over the history of our country and before that as during the colonial period who have been ignored. Do they deserve statues in Grant Park or other places? Of course they do. I'm not, uh, I'm not attempting to say, well, the, uh, the figures of the past are the only ones that we've identified thus far who deserve it. No one else in the past deserves to be honored. That's not true. But what I am saying is that in a case like Christopher Columbus, let us restore the statue at a time where there will not be violence, and let us put a marker there explaining the context and why he is honored and the context of that time and today so that people understand why that statue is still there. Most people, you know, those who do not know history are doomed to relive it. Mm-hmm. It's a great line. Do we want to start burning our books that we don't agree with. We want to follow what the Nazis did, what these, the uh, communists in the Soviet Union did. Do we have to have our little red book like Mao Zedong had in China and everything else had to be destroyed? Is that the road that we really want to take for the United States of America? You know, there are people in our society who believe that the history of the United States is only one of oppression and racism. I disagree. I dis- I'm not going to dismiss 200 years of efforts by our forefathers, our parents, to fully implement the values that are enshrined in America's founding documents. And if we follow that reasoning, it's difficult to understand why Frederick Douglass a African-American who earned his freedom, got his freedom before the Civil War. He defended the U.S. Constitution. He said it was a, quote, a glorious document. And his celebration of the potential of our nation based on the ideal of inalienable rights. America is not perfect. The three of us know that. Yeah, now, Edward, mm-hmm. just speak for a moment, because you're saying so many great things here, and that is... Talk about we run the risk of destroying who we are when you feel you have to destroy the entire past and create anew. That's right, Well, What we're doing is we are pandering to certain people in society 
who they have judged what is politically correct. They have judged whether or not uh, the speech codes, what you can and cannot say, safe zones now in universities, you can't upset students by talking about certain things, the purging of independent-minded scholarship. That is not the purpose of a university, and it certainly is not the purpose of the United States of America. Now, just also talk for a moment how we've gone way beyond just Christopher Columbus, but other statues are coming down, or, sh- or people are saying they should come down. I've, I've heard of the Blessed Virgin Mary statues being desecrated. In churches, right. Exactly. And well, so, Una Paracera in California, no. who founded the, the Missions of California, that he was a slaver, a murderer, etc. That was not the purpose of Una Paracera and the Franciscans who manned those missions. And to say it was, people certainly ignore what the missions did. In fact, I can make the case, as someone, uh, I do programs on the California missions, Native Americans died in contact with Europeans. They died in Puritan New England, where they set up Christian villages to convert them to, to Puritanism. They died at the Spanish missions. They died in missions in Mexico and South America. And the chief culprit of this were what we're experiencing today viruses that Native Americans simply had no resistance toward. There were Native American uh, Indian or Native Americans in California who became priests at the missions and were sent to Rome to study. Most of them died. Why? They were tortured. They were enslaved. No, they died of viruses that they had no defense. Okay? So when we talk about these things, I think people need uh, to study their history, or maybe we need to teach history. Uh, We need better history teachers. Uh, I taught history for many years. Many students would complain to me that history was uh, dry and boring, etc. And that's true. If you don't know the story, the human story, if you haven't read history as I have for my entire life, and we can, you know, History is the story of human lives. It's not something that's dusty and dull and dead and useless. That's a good point. You know, Ed, what's the, what's the future for the commission and for the city as you look to honor future folks? Well, the, uh, if, if other statues, monuments, are uh, also challenged, this commission, again, will look at those monuments and give their recommendation on what to do with them. Remember, you know, there's a difference between Christopher Columbus and a statue to Jeff Davis, Jefferson Davis, the first and only president of the Confederate States of America. Mm-hmm. Why was that statue erected in Richmond? That statue was erected to honor him as the president of the Confederate States of America, which was a slave culture. Right. Again, the statue of Christopher Columbus that was put up was not honoring him for importing slaves to Spain, a practice that Ferdinand and Isabella stopped. They did not want a slave trade in Native Americans back to Spain. It was put up to honor what he did in terms of 
initialing the tremendous age of discovery that occurred. There are other aspects of his life that are wrong. But that achievement was very important at that time and had a major impact on European history and in the history of the Americas from that point on. And there is no way in which that fact can be erased. Our thanks to Dr. Gordon for his perspective on that controversial topic. On November 13th, three new auxiliary bishops will be ordained for the Archdiocese of Chicago. This week, Focus on the Liturgy hosts Todd Williamson and Timothy Johnston explored the theology of the office of bishop. Here's a highlight. Timothy and I thought that what we would do today is just talk about the right of ordination of a bishop and uh, break open the various parts and the uh, the right of uh, ordination itself, <clears throat> which is rich with, oh my gosh, yes. uh, just symbolic actions and gestures and uh, the the whole uh, the whole. Um, uh, theology and spirituality of, of of ordaining a bishop. So it's um I mean it, it's it's a big event. It it is a huge event for any local church. And I was thinking this morning as I was doing a little preparation um, to come before our conversation was um, not not everyone ever gets to witness an ordination. Number one, um, uh, you know it, it's not something that's done every year in a diocese, you know, I mean, now a place like Chicago, maybe a little more frequently than some places around the country. So what an opportunity to really reflect on um, the importance of the role of a bishop in, in the church and how the right ultimately um, helps communicate that uh, the way, as you were saying, Todd, the, the different symbols and the prayer texts really provide a theology of, of church. Uh, oh my in, gosh. In some yeah. Ways. yeah. Oh yeah. And, and maybe even, um, even before talking about the right itself, Timothy, you just kind of alluded to it. Just, just the role of a bishop. Um, you know, a, a bishop is a, uh, a is a priest who, uh, from a diocese who or a religious order who has been um, identified uh, as one who would be um, worthy of the office, a good bishop, a, mm-hmm. a, a good priest, um, because the bishop really is the um, uh, the chief shepherd of of any diocese. Yeah, it, he. Uh, I just again going back to my own grad school days. You know, the bishop is the sign of unity in a diocese, that local church. So when we when we talk about local church, we aren't talking necessarily about your Saint Bartholomew's. We're talking about the diocese in which Saint Teresa, Saint Bartholomew, Saint whatever. You're part of that, and the bishop is a sign of unity um, uh, with with the universal church, even though he has some autonomy in in what. Uh, the way he governs and and does his uh, uh, maybe execute is the better word executes his ministry yeah, within yeah. that uh, local church that territorial space uh, uh, region if you will yeah the 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 um, all the documents of the Second Vatican Council when they talk about a local church they're referring to the diocese because the diocese is a you know is a is a microcosm of the church the diocese is in in many ways is a uh, of a vision of the church, right? E- Worldwide. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and this is something, uh, I don't want to get us off topic, but we, uh, I think there's so much, even just in talking about that, maybe that's a whole different show, of course, 
but we don't really catechize people in the sense of uh, what it is to be church or that ecclesiology in a sense. So uh, to broaden, you know, when, I've, when I was working on diocesan work, often um, very closely with the bishop and, and, and implementing his plans and visions, you know, for different things, I, I really quickly came to realize how few people understood the relationship between the parish and the diocese, not in a bad way, just never heard of it. And it was always fun to have the conversation um, to help understand. And I think, again, the ordination rite um, helps communicate that even more clearly, that that sign of unity, his office of governing, of sanctifying. Of teaching. Of teaching. I mean, all of that um, is so important. And and as, as Todd alluded to or said earlier, you know, he is the chief shepherd. He's the chief everything. He's the chief catechist. He's the chief liturgist. He's, he's and, the, yep, he's, he's the, 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 the spiritual father yeah. of everyone in that diocese. And, and anyone, uh, which I always appreciated, even in my own diocesan work, whether ordained or not ordained, you work on behalf of the bishop. I mean, I I remember sitting in, and when I was in Salt Lake City even, and, and Bishop Wester at the time and I were talking, and you know we, whatever we were discussing, I'm sure it was some liturgical uh, thing we were going to be doing, and I said, Bishop, everything I do is to make you look good. <laughs> and, I, and again, meaning that in the best sense of that, yeah. like, I'm not here at my own service. Like, I'm here to make sure we can, um, you know, put forth the, the, what the church right. invites us to, especially around liturgical formation, but to make sure that that your teaching is made known and present um, in the people of God in this in this diocese. I suppose the imagery would be this, before we take this first break, Timothy, but the, the imagery would be this. <clears throat> As the universal church is governed by Pope Francis, by the Pope, right? Um, so uh, a diocese is governed by its bishop. And just like that, a parish is governed by its pastor. Exactly. But, uh, and and, I mean, so in a sense, those are all three images of one another, images of the church in different situations. And ultimately, the image of Christ. Yes. Right? I mean, that's, that it is... uh, the, from the Pope, the Bishop, even to a household, those who who um, parent, if you will, well, it is, not if you will, if the parenting, it is always in the image of Christ, the Good Shepherd, it yeah. is the image of Christ, the teacher, an image. And, and so it is kind of hierarchical in the sense of the way you think about it, but it is always reflecting what Christ is inviting us to do in the world, that love, that compassion, that mercy. That's 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 what a bishop images. That's exactly. that's that's what the bishop represents. Um, it, they are successors to the apostles, um, and so what that means, <clears throat> it's kind of like Saint Paul in Corinthians, right? <clears throat> Pardon me. For I myself receive, I hand on to you what I myself received. Exactly. That's that's the imagery of um, uh, you know of, of what we know as apostolic succession, the apostles. The apostles, they laid hands on those who would lead uh, Christian communities, the, the, the you know, new n- local church, if you will, of, yep. of Ephesus or of, of you know, of, of Rome or of uh, uh, Corinth. Um, and they then pass on that same spirit. They have done that through the ages. Yeah. That's what we uh, believe and understand about apostolic succession. And so it will be for the three new bishops here in Chicago. Yeah, all of that is so uh, really great to think about, because one of the things that I learned, like, just this made me think of this when I was in college, you know, sometimes we think of, you know, oh, a bishop's a bishop, 
but what we said earlier in that first segment is that the bishop is responsible for his territory. So neighboring dioceses sometimes have different norms or practices. And I know right now, only because of my of what's going on in the world, you know, sometimes we see dissidents between some Catholic communities um, who are saying, well, my bishop says this or my bishop says that. Well, that may be true. And, because, the, and he has every right to it. Right, because uh, bis- the bishop is in charge of his diocese and the beauty of that is it's also still a sign of unity with and communion with the universal church. And I think we need to reclaim uh, some of that yeah. beauty, uh, that that each diocese has some uh, beautiful autonomy in that communion, like not, not a free will or nilly-willy sort of thing um, in that. And, um, but yeah, and then I just want to say, because we, we alluded to this as well, is for those that are may be wondering, the documents talk about very clearly there's a threefold, um, there's three pieces to the office of bishop, ultimately, which we, we mentioned in that first segment, that governing, the teaching, and uh, sanctifying. And you see that reflected in the rite of ordination and itself. Exactly. So let me just ask you this real quick, uh, Timothy. So um, not <clears throat> not every bishop is the head of a diocese. Right. So what we will be... Um, who we will be ordaining next month here in Chicago are three auxiliary bishops who are not, or they're not heads, they won't be a head of a diocese. They are ordained as, as assistants to the archbishop of the Archdiocese of Chicago, Cardinal Supich. Yeah, so this this is, um, you know, not every diocese has an auxiliary, but an auxiliary, as, as you're saying, is is someone um, that is ordained to assist, especially in a larger geographical region or where the population is larger. And like the Archdiocese, like the Archdiocese of Chicago. Of Chicago. Um, for example, yeah, when I was in Salt Lake City, 84,000 square miles, we had 20-something parishes, right? So we didn't need an auxiliary bishop um, because the bishop, even though it took forever to travel places, could get, could get there. Right. Um, but here in Chicago, there's so many people, uh, that pastoral care. And so um, the cardinal, along with the bishop and, and those who are vetting um, uh, candidates possibly, you know, choose people who can step up and, and assist in that role of governance, right. um, of the teaching, and certainly um, of the sanctification of God's people. Now, that's not to say that one of these auxiliary bishops might not someday be appointed right. the bishop of a diocese, the ordinary of a diocese, but uh, as of as of now, they, they will assist uh, Cardinal Supich in his duties as bishop of Chicago, of Chicago. Archbishop. Yep. And at the end of the day, the ordinary, I mean, he's, he's the one that's in charge. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's the best way to say that, but um, you know, so it's he's the one chiefly responsible, right? He is the chief shepherd yeah. in that sense, and so even though uh, the auxiliary bishop isn't in that role, they're still fully a bishop. It's not like a step down. I think that's important to think because sometimes that's a great we, point. When yes. we think of auxiliary, we're like, oh, they don't, they're not the full thing, or they're maybe not doing the full ministry. No, they they do that at least in this case in communion with the cardinal um, in, in as the as the bishop of the archbishop exactly. of chicago and real quick an archbishop and an uh, and a regular an archbishop and a, and, and a bishop all that is is uh, uh, the the bishop of the largest diocese in the province 
is the archbishop. Uh, the, the largest diocese in a province, so for example, Chicago is part of the province of Illinois. All of the dioceses in Illinois. Chicago is the, um, is, is the archdiocese of this province. Right. Obviously, then, the bishop of any archdiocese is called an archbishop. But he's the same, that he's equal with the bishop of Joliet, for example, or the right. bishop of, of uh, Springfield. Right. It's just a, a title to help mark what, what their role is. A quick funny story on that is when I, I grew up in the archdiocese of St. Louis, and as a young boy, I always thought we were called the archdiocese because we had the arch. The arch. <laughs> so I, I learned quickly that was not the case. Um, but uh, one final uh, note, just going back to our auxiliary bishop, is when they are ordained, um, and I don't know how this gets, if it's mentioned out loud or if it's in the worship aid, they are ordained for a particular church. So even though they can't be the Archbishop of Chicago, they will get a titular see or one of former diocese that is no longer in existence. So every, because when you're ordained, you have to be ordained for a place because you are entrusted with the pastoral care of, of the, the people, people of that, that place. place. Yep. So I always find that fascinating too. So they'll be, um, even though they're auxiliaries of the Archdiocese of Chicago, they will have a titular see or an extinct see. Uh, titular is just title. Uh, right basically. So um, a, a diocese sometimes in Northern Africa or somewhere um, uh, else that is no longer. So I always find that fascinating. Yeah. yeah. The, the, I, these are the geeky mo- the yeah. pieces. I always go do research on those uh, extinct dioceses once I find out who's ex- uh, uh, the titular of a place. Because I'm always curious, like, well, who, when was it founded and who was it? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just to say uh, quickly before we break that um, for Chicago, our three new auxiliary bishops will be uh, Bishop-elect Kevin Birmingham, who uh, right now is actually my boss. He's, he heads the Department of Parish Vitality and Mission in the Archdiocese. And uh, Bishop-elect Jeff Grob is the current judicial vicar of the Archdiocese. And Bishop-elect um, Robert Lombardo, who is uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, rector of, of uh, the, the um, pastor, if you will, of, of Holy Angel's Mission. Uh, okay. He is a uh, conventual Franciscan of the Renewal, um, a, a religious order priest who... Uh, can be obviously named a bishop. Uh, Cardinal George was uh, a religious right. order priest who was ordained a bishop and then uh, elevated to cardinal. But so those are the three men who we will be all fine, f- very fine men. All three of them, I, I know them and have worked with them for a couple of years, good couple of years. They're all three fine men. So they will be the they are the ones who will be ordained as the newest auxiliary bishops for the Archdiocese of Chicago. I, I think that's very exciting. Some really great, uh, great guys, just from the little bit I've heard about them. Yeah, so. they, they are. They are. We're lucky that way. Uh, the the rite of ordination includes um, the uh, co or I'm sorry, the uh, principal consecrator, the one the one uh, who is the bishop. In this case, it will be Cardinal Supic. But the ordaining bishop is always accompanied by two. Co-ordainers, two co-consecrators, yeah. they're, they're referred to as two other bishops, one on his left, one on his right, uh, who uh, are, are part of this celebration. So um, as, as well as visiting bishops uh, who, who will be there and who will lay hands and, and who will be part of the celebration. But it's really these three key roles. 
the principal ordainer, and then he is accompanied by two uh, co-consecrators. Yeah, the the uh, we were just talking during the break about sort of what what's the reason for these two uh, other folks to help with the uh, ordination? You know, can't one be uh, sufficient enough, like in, in the priesthood? Uh, you know, when we ordain priests or whatnot, and and. Maybe I'm learning something today too, because there's not much really said about that that we know of. I mean, there's probably stuff written on that. But one of the things, Todd, that you were you were mentioning was um, maybe that it's a, a way to help uh, ensure ensure or in confirm that uh, apostolic succession. Um, but it's also I want to. I'm just musing on this myself at this point. Is um, you know part of what the right is doing is welcoming this individual into the College of Bishops um, a- as well. Yeah. So maybe there's some symbolism in, in, in that as well. Um, but, but yeah, every ordination has that co-consecrator. What I don't know is how are those, like if it's a new diocese getting, or a diocese getting a new bishop, how is the principal consecrator chosen or ordainer or those um, other, other two? Um, is it always the metropolitan of a region? I, bl- I believe so. The... Yeah, that it's that it's always the metropolitan yeah. that, that would and and again the metropolitan is the um, uh, the, the he, he 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 doesn't oversee the other dioceses, but he is metropolitan is the uh, uh, is is always the 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 archbishop in the archdiocese of a province of the province. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and and in this case, it is uh, Cardinal Supich is Archbishop of Chicago. But the uh, the ordination itself, it takes place within uh, a mass. They always, always within the celebration of the the Eucharist, um, and it's 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 just um, it, it takes the rite of ordination itself happens after the homily, um, and in this case, so the, the the liturgy of the word is the always the first part of uh, any celebration of the Eucharist, and. So it will be here. There will be uh, three readings that will be proclaimed um, here in Chicago when they have these uh, major archdiocesan liturgies. There are always languages other than English that are used, and so the, the readings are proclaimed in... Uh, 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 the first two readings are usually proclaimed in a language other than English, and the three bishops actually re- requested that they be um, Tagalog and Polish. Oh, and nice. So that's what the, the first two readings will, will be proclaimed. Uh, the first reading, I believe, is Tagalog, and the second reading is in Polish. Um, and then the, the, the rite itself begins after the proclamation of the gospel. After the proclamation of the gospel, there is the request made that the, uh, that the, uh, the, the, the cardinal ordain this priest chosen for bishop. Um, and it, it is often, um, it is often a, 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 it's always a priest of the diocese where the right. ordination is taking place. And this, in this case, it will be the chair of the presbyteral council. Uh, Father Matthew O'Donnell, who will uh, request that these men be ordained, and the it, well, and I was just going to add to that the, the symbolism of that is right. is so important yes. to think about that it, it's not just some random thing, but that the the symbolism that local. this local church affirms and and is asking and requesting that this happen because yeah. if 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 the local church doesn't receive it. It, it doesn't happen. And, and in fact, the wording is the Church of it, Chicago right, right. asks that these men be ordained. And, and that begins the rite. 
Our thanks to Todd and Timothy for that timely information. Here's a reminder that you can listen to all our programs live or at your convenience by going to radiotv.artchicago.org. That's radiotv.artchicago.org. And our radio programs are available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Anchor. So subscribe today. For our final segment today, we go back to the Catholic Chicago program. Hosts Father Greg Sakowitz and Mark Teresi spent some time with members of Nonviolence Works, a nonprofit organization located in the South Shore neighborhood. Nonviolence Works offers education and training in character development and nonviolence. Here is a highlight. Backed by popular demand, this is the threesome we just cannot break up. Phil Bradley, president and founder of Nonviolence Works, Dr. Alfredi Weedham, vice president and Loyola University professor, Larry Campbell, treasurer and chair of the Parish Pastoral Council of Saints Peter and Paul Catholic Church in Chicago. Phil, Alfredi, and Larry, welcome to the program this morning. How are you all doing? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for Good morning. Oh, sure. In fact, uh, you've been on many times, and you are always so terrific in what you talk about. And such a talk about, as I mentioned right at the start of the program, COVID-19, social unrest, an election coming up. And maybe for just a background, Phil, you are the president and founder of Nonviolence Works. How long has it been in existence, and when did it begin? Well, uh, it's an ongoing journey uh, when you look at the evolution of it. We, as a, uh, as a trio, have been together going on six years, well, four to six years. But the whole principle of nonviolence is going on since the 60s, uh, and we are still working on it. Uh, so that's how nonviolence works is, is still contributing to the pushing the needle using nonviolence. Now, as an educator, Elfrida, um, you're Loyola University, you're a professor. How did you, how did you connect with this uh, movement? Well, I connect with it through South Shore. Uh, I have been a resident of South Shore many years. Uh, my church is in South Shore, and I am very dedicated to the opportunities for equality and integration in our society. So I met Phil through that, and I was very much moved by the activism as well the 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 opportunity to actually apply ideas that I have thought about other people have thought about but never had sort of a, 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 an immediate um, avenue for saying to my students this is something you can do mm-hmm. not just talk about exactly and Larry how did you get involved well I started in uh, I was a senior at Marquette University and I had an elective to take, and I decided to take a class on nonviolence. And the class focused on Dr. King and Gandhi, as well as Christ as role models. So I've been interested for a long time. And then, as Phil mentioned, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> Alfredi and Phil started doing some teaching of uh, nonviolence to parishes in the archdiocese. And I happened to go to one of the seminars a couple years ago. And I was so impressed with what they were doing. And as Alfredi said, put my ideas into action in terms of, of what they were accomplishing, that I asked them if they needed some help. And um, the nice thing is we all three of us got together 
and have been, you know, I think very successful the last couple of years, but there's still an awful lot of work left to do. And I think this is such a timely program this morning in light of what's been going on in our nation this year with an upcoming election, which I have to be very blunt. You know, I've heard people say if Trump is reelected, there'll be violence and protesting. If Biden wins the election, there'll be violence and protesting. Could be. And so I think, you know, you know, Phil and Alfredi and Larry, how do you respond to something like that? Now, I'm all for peaceful protesting. Not a problem. Be happy to even join for the cause. But once it becomes violent and it becomes very tension, and so I, I know that nonviolence works, you're saying it does work, but don't you find, let me direct this to Phil, in all the work you do, do you sometimes feel you're taking two steps forward and five steps backwards? No, no, never. Uh, okay, not say more about that. Non- yeah, not, not when you apply nonviolence. Uh, it's when you uh, misapply nonviolence, you take a step back and you give nonviolence a bad name, mm-hmm. which, which is happening now. But let's deal with the evolution of how we got here. The Cardin- the Pope Francis announced when he first got a seal that he's praying for Chicago, and he's praying that we apply nonviolent principles in Chicago to solve our problems. And it was on the front page of the newspaper. So nonviolent work picked up that mantle because we knew we at least had spiritual support with this position that the church is not going to take. And so we've been lobbying and advocating to, to work with Cardinal Supich because the initiative that we presented was truce and reconciliation. When There's always a time for truce and reconciliation. And right now, within the construct of this American problem, what the truth that's needed is truth and reconciliation, which is the highest form of nonviolence. Uh, and but what you need is a central spokesman who can be the moral majority. Uh, anyone can do it if they find themselves, like say the mother who just lost a child uh, to violence. She can declare a truce and let's reconcile other than vengeance, let's, let's prosecute the criminals, which is not, that's part of the process too. But the main thing is how do we call a truce? The police are criminals to, our, to the population. The population look like criminals to the police. We have to call a truce. And how do we reconcile that problem? How do we all come to the table and stop bearing the hatchet in each other, but, but bear it in history? Okay? Now, now, I noticed on your website you have a pledge on your website, a pledge that people would take in terms of living an, a, a life that's in recognition, a lifestyle of nonviolence. What is that? Can you tell us that pledge? I mean, that may be something that individuals can take to heart as they listen to you. Absolutely. See, one of the the things that the nonviolent training does, we teach unlearn, learn, and apply. How do you unlearn behaviors that's getting in the way of your development? One is to be violent. How do you learn nonviolence? Then how do you apply that in your relationship? And after going through the 40-hour training, we asked the participants to pledge to make nonviolence not just a concept, but a way of life. How do you wave to your neighbor? How do you say good morning to your enemy? How do you really start applying this and see the fruits that you get back from this deed? Okay? And so and, and every family needs to start looking at how to apply nonviolence in your everyday life. And that's where we're at right now. In quarantine, there's more domestic violence. From being quarantined, there's more divorces. From being quarantined, there's more child abuse. From being quarantined, there's more substance abuse. 
how do you apply nonviolence to yourself? Now, excuse me, (laughs) Dr. Alfredi, so in this pandemic, not being able to be face-to-face with folks in terms of your training, what's happening? How how are you continuing to reach out to folks? How do you reach out to the kids in the classroom? Yeah, good question. Okay, I'll I'll talk about the classroom first, and then we can talk about the the um, the local neighborhood uh, organization that we brought together uh, recently uh, through the um, through the uh, uh, community trust uh, Chicago community trust sponsorship, but that into the classroom. We talk every single day about how we are and what challenges we face, and I try to draw the students out about what's going on in their lives and how they're dealing with it. Uh, some of my students have become ill, and um, thankfully they are not too seriously ill. They still listen to the to the class, as you can imagine we do everything on zoom now mm-hmm. uh and they try to keep up with their work because you know, they understand that there is a future right it's not just about today or this fall or even next semester but but we have to engage people very directly about these challenges and um and and give them an opportunity to talk about what's hard you know and not keep not 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 allow them to sort of um, wallow in a certain way uh, because because that is kind of our tendency right they are isolated they are often very sad they are feeling like they have no they're not sure you know what how how to cope with this with their families around all the time they they can't do their work as well because they don't have co- co- student colleagues to consult because many of my students are freshmen, they don't know anybody else on campus. They, you know, <laughs> in their class, they can't go to those meeting places where they can um, discuss and share and learn uh, together. So, so uh, my job is not just to you know, engage in the material, but to engage with them personally. So that they feel that we can build these connections despite the obstacles. You know, Alfredi, you and Phil have said some very important things. And things that gets me is that uh, right now I deal with people as best I can. Beside our world being turned upside down is people, you know, Father Chuck Dom spoke at all the, spoke at the 10 o'clock mass a few weeks ago about domestic violence. He says, as you said, Phil, domestic violence is up. Um, anger is up. Tempers are shorter and how do we talk about non-violence works when we read in the paper like in the tribune in the times this morning now we have more restrictions regarding restaurants could be numbers gathering and so what started in march we seem to be going back to that we're not stay at home thank god but i think we all know people are getting weary stress anxious, tired, and they just wanted to go away, and this is not. And so we talk about nonviolence works, but the exact opposite is happening. I find people are incredibly short-tempered, angry, and they take it out on families, neighborhood. And so how do you respond to all this? Unless, unless I'm living in a bubble or something, maybe no, I'm no, missing no, it. You, no, no, very good question. Uh, one of the exercises that we use in the training uh, it's called past, present, future, uh, unlearn, learn, and find. And what we sh- 
show is how do you apply forgiveness? How do you use forgiveness as a tool to take the blemishes of your past, to take blemishes and issues that you have with people that you unresolved with, so that you can see how you have been reacting? That because of your unresolved past and unresolved feelings, you are reacting, and it's, and it's causing more problems than solving. And so, so we give them a tool to actually exercise the emotions and see how to get back in perspective uh, per person, per family. Because people in your past, because one of the things we show is when you ask who has done anything wrong to you, uh, and the people that's on the list is my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, my cousin, my friend, my neighbor, a stranger. And it's never a system. Uh, it's never an establishment. People who do the most damage to us are people who raise us, who bring us up. They determine our perception and how we react to the world. And so they start to see for themselves, you can heal yourself if you start to exercise your emotions. You start to exercise your spirit. Exercise, because it can be dormant. There's no void space. you got to come out somewhere. Larry, you're in a parish. You're at St. Peter and Paul. Give us your take on... How how is the issue of violence or stress or how how do you see that playing out in the parish? You know, I think that uh, Saint Peter and Paul is certainly like uh, all the other um, parishes in the archdiocese. Um, all of us are being affected on a daily basis. You know, a lot of people tell me it's uh, it's like the movie Groundhog Day. You wake up and you hear the same news again and again and again. And as Father Greg has mentioned, you know, right now things are, are in trouble. Um, I can tell you that what the what my parish is trying to do is, is get back to some sense of normalcy, which I know is not going to be uh, happening anytime soon. But we've tried to, to start some of our committees up via Zoom. Uh, we've tried to connect with each other in terms of personal contacts. And we try to support each other. And I think uh, many parishes are trying to do the same thing to help us. And, you know, the, the thing is, I would say before I um, give it over to uh, Phil and Alfredi is the fact that now is the time when so many things are outside our control. All of us need to do something every day that we can make a positive impact, which means we can do things to diminish the violence. We can do things to train people. And I think by doing that, we're helping our sanity and trying to tell ourselves, hey, I've made an impact today. So we, we are really um, motivated to try to change some of the things that are happening right now. Now, along those lines, Alfredi, talk about the South Shore collaboration for Safe Zone. Well, I can speak a little bit to it, but it's really Philip who has uh, spearheaded that, that effort. Um, in South Shore, we have 29 organizations that we have collaborated with in order to leverage our individual skills and resources to something larger that can actually create the, the infrastructure for developing a nonviolent zone. And that this would be something, we have a model that would apply to all, all the community areas of Chicago and beyond in order to in order to provide practical on-the-ground training that for people to in all the institutions that affect our lives, so it's not just about, uh, you know, random, it's, it's, it's specified for 
the different kinds of, of organizations and, and groups that actually work in all of our neighborhoods so that we can build, you know, we can, we can build something uh, correctly that people can rely on, that people can use, that can, that can become, as Phil said earlier, a day-to-day lifestyle. Why don't you add to that? That's excellent. Want to add to that, Phil? Yeah. See, the nonviolent zone, it's just that. It's, it's how do you look at it, a community, whatever that problem is, and you wrap your arms around it, and you put it in a zone, and you, and you, and you put a trained civilian citizenry on that problem. That's the counterbalance to the police department, which they've been crying out about. We need help. Where is the citizen? Where is the who can come and help us take some of this workload off of us? Well, welcome to the nonviolent zone, because you have to have a trained counterbalance. Part of the problem in the streets right now is the, the angry citizen is not the correct counterbalance to the argument we have with some angry police. You've got to have a trained citizenry to have a counterbalance. Now, but, the, but the other part is you look at a one-mile radius, and every ward is 50 of them. Every ward has their trouble zones. The African-American community primarily is always in the newspaper. The African-American communities always look like the, the only violent community. But there's other communities that have substance abuse primarily, and they have another ethnic group. And they have other cultural domestic violence problems that don't get reported. But it still put a scorn on human development. Now, can you explain, things have changed. People used to come to you for these programs. If I'm a pastor, I'm a lay leader in the parish, and I'm listening to this thinking, boy, we really need, we really need some input. We need some training. How do people, how do you even go about that now? Well, Uh, you know, what's interesting, this new paradigm can actually speed up learning for those who want to get it. Uh, A lot of people are teaching themselves even on YouTube on how to fix self and solve a problem if you ask the right question. So this training can be modified to that same degree and get a worldview. Other people from all over the world can chime in, not just your immediate surroundings, which opens a whole new door for uh, organizing. So you're a broader broader coalition. You're part of a... Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, the good thing is, like Elfridi said, we are part of an Indian association group who have roots and uh, groups in India uh, who who's complementing the work of Gandhi, of, of which we also do and put in our training, and how to keep keeping his life going. Uh, one of the things I shared at their event is how Jesus, Gandhi, and King will always be synonymous with each other. They they will always be hooked together because Jesus created nonviolence, Gandhi comprehended it, and King got it done. And so they were always be connected. That's a good analogy. I like mm-hmm. that. Very good. See, and so, but the nonviolent zone is just that, too. It's teaching citizens, and all it is is setting up a scientific non-for-profit organization that provides that service. Because you need a minimum of nine people and to administrate and to evaluate your progress so you can keep moving forward. But they have to be on the same page and understand now. And we close today's program with an important reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash catholicchicago. 
Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish language Mass at 10 a.m., and Pole Vision for televising our Polish language Mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thank you for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. I'm Michael May for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend, everybody. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.